If you're listening to this episode as it comes out, but you're not a Herald Sun subscriber, we have a deal that might be of interest. Take up a 12-month digital subscription and we'll send you a pair of Jabra Elite Active 65T True Wireless Headphones. So not only do you get unrestricted access to the Herald Sun, including my weekly columns and much more, but you also get a pair of headphones to listen to this podcast, or anything else for that matter. The deal costs $7 a week for the first 12 months. Minimum cost is $364. Conditions apply, naturally. Learn more at heraldsun.com.au forward slash Jabra. That is spelt J-A-B-R-A. It's one of Australian journalism's great stories. So I'm basically going through the garbage to find out whether James Roncadazzoni was connected to that property in any way. When I heard a shout from behind me and I turned around and there was three Italian blokes, all with shotguns, that pointed at me saying something in Italian. This is Andrew Rule with Life and Crimes. This week, we're back with Keith Moore, my longtime colleague and friend, journalist and author, who continues our series on the Mafia in Australia. Keith, it strikes me that one of the great stories in your time, one of your best stories, is the story of Gianfranco Tazzoni, who was a mafia supergrass, I think was the phrase that you probably used. Can you remind our listeners what that story is and what happened and how you found him? Yes, it stems back to the 1977 murder of Donald Mackay. Donald Mackay was uh, standing for politics against um, the grass castles of Griffith, where Italian farmers got very rich almost overnight. And uh, Gianfranco Tazzoni was the Melbourne link um, to selling the marijuana that was being grown in Griffith. He had a personal relationship with Robert Trimboli that worked together in, in the poker machine industry. And it was Tazzoni that Trimboli turned to when... Uh, his bosses in Griffith decided that Donald Mackay had to be murdered because he was bad for business. What sort of fellow was Tazzoni? He wasn't a full-blown crook as such, or how would you describe him? Look, he was a Walter Mitty character. He'd worked for a long time as a private detective in Melbourne for uh, Tom Erickson, another yeah. weird character in uh, criminal history in, in Melbourne. Shades of grey, these people. They're not white knights, are they? No. He, look, he, he was a very big marijuana dealer in that most of the Griffith marijuana that was sold in Melbourne was done via the Trimboli Tazzoni Nexus. So right. basically they were very close and Trimboli particularly wanted the Mackay murder to not look like it was the Calabrian Mafia, which is why a painter and docker, Jimmy Baisley from Melbourne, was hired through Tazzoni to do the job. An outsider. Yes. Tazzoni then was captured with a bootful of marijuana. He was driving back from Canberra, the Operation Seville Crop, which, which is where... New South Wales Police and the Federal Police thought, wow, we're going to get all of these people that had been monitoring them. They knew that there was a, a lord coming and they presumed that it was going to Sydney. As the convoy was heading to the Hume Highway, they turned left instead of right oh. and started heading towards Melbourne. In somebody's Mercedes. They, 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 there was a Mercedes and there was truck. Tazoni was driving the Mercedes and he had a boot full of marijuana and he was following a big truck that had uh, lots more marijuana in it. So all of a sudden... The New South Wales Police and the Feds, who have a distrust of Victoria Police, because, of course, Victoria Police were more honest than the New South Wales Police, so there was not a lot of trust between them. They really didn't want to involve Victoria Police, but had to because they had not set up a plan B. In most police operations, you have a plan A and a plan B. They don't necessarily always go the way you intend. 
So basically, uh, Johnny Wheel, detective from Victoria, was informed, and it was he that picked up the convoy as they were heading towards the city. Where was this? Just just north of Melbourne? Just north of on Melbourne. On the Hume? Uh, yeah, on the Hume. And look, he feared that once they got a bit closer and there was a bit of traffic, they might lose them because it's you know hard to follow people. So basically, he made the call to pull both vehicles over, and lo and behold, he finds the marijuana. Which he knew was there. Yes. Yeah. And, and Tazzoni... Then very quickly, as a lot of criminals do, tried to wheel and deal. The first thing he tried to do was bribe Johnny Wheel and was told in no uncertain terms that that wouldn't work. So the next thing he did, he started offering snippets of information to um, the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, McCaskill and Bob Clark. Where did they take Tazzoni? Did they go off to a country location and debrief him or what happened? Yeah, usually in motels, different motels, because they knew they had a big prize and that they knew his priors, they knew his background, they knew who he was linked to. And the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence thought, if we can turn him into becoming an informer against the Calabrian Mafia, because not many people do turn against the Calabrian Mafia and not many that do survive. So basically they started teasing him out over like it was an 18-month period. McCaskill and Clark just had incredible patience. And again, Tazzoni, like most criminals, didn't want to just spill his guts on day one. He just kept giving them just enough. He wanted to get off the drug charges, basically. He didn't want to go to jail. He wanted them dropped. But in return, he obviously had to provide something big. The first thing he did was dob in a, a Victorian um, detective who had been dealing drugs. And uh, he thought that would be enough. That person was charged. Whilst that was good information, basically McCaskill and Clark really wanted the goods on um, the Mackay murder in particular, um, and anything to do with the Calabrian Mafia, because they knew how close he'd be. They knew how often he went to Griffith. Right. So, so they said, look, okay, that was good, but we need more. He said, oh, what, what, if I, what if I told you who was involved in the Mackay murder? And that's when they really started to get excited. And again, it was through to Zoni that we now know what the sequence of events was, which is Trimboli was ordered by his bosses, get rid of Mackay, Trimboli turns to Tazzoni, Tazzoni then turns to uh, George Joseph, the gun dealer, and George Joseph then finds Jimmy Baisley. So that was the, the chain the of events to make it not look like it was a Calabrian Mafia murder. And just to go back one step, is this a conspiracy between people at Griffith and was that Trimboli and certain others in Griffith? Trimboli was the Mr. Fix-It. The person who organised it was Tony Sergi from the winery, who, who died a couple of years ago, so we can now reveal that fact, because he was never charged, and it would have been difficult to talk about him were he still alive. So he was the one that called the meeting at his winery, and you know Trimboli was at it, and a couple of other people were any, who any, are still alive, so any, I can't name Any Barbaros involved? Uh, y- yes, yes, there was a Barbaro involved, very big Calabrian Mafia connections with the Barbaros. Through to Zoni, we, we got that connection, and uh, Trimboli, of course, by this stage had fled overseas and nobody knew where he was. But it ended up that because the murder happened in Griffith and because Victoria Police were the ones that had the information, Tazzoni and the others could only be charged with conspiracy to murder. Even though Jimmy Baisley pulled the trigger, he couldn't be charged with murder because the murder took place in Griffith, New South Wales. But the conspiracy took place outside the Kew Cemetery. That's where they used to meet and that's where the money was exchanged. And, and it was how Jimmy Baisley was told who he had to kill and where he got his $10,000 for doing it. And also the gun that was provided to him to commit the murder. So Tazzoni never expected to be charged with that. The drug charges against him were dropped. And they also had to be dropped against his co-conspirators because otherwise it would have been obvious to his co-conspirators that he'd turned turtle, basically, that he'd, uh, he'd become a supergrass. 
And he was mortified when he was actually charged with the conspiracy to murder because he felt, you know, he'd spilt his guts, he'd told everybody about it that he shouldn't have been charged. But obviously, no matter how helpful somebody is, they've still got to have some sort of penalty. Having said that, he got an incredibly light sentence, ended up in jail for about 18 months, and then he went into witness protection because, of course, he was the Mafia supergrass. He turned against the Calabrian Mafia. Dangerous thing to do. He was only in protective custody for witness protection for about three months, and he hated it because, imagine, it's not a very pleasant experience. You're getting shoveled from motel to motel, in those days, you couldn't actually get a fake identity. You couldn't get a new passport. It, it just wasn't as advanced as it is now. So he opted out of it and went overseas. And that was the last anybody had heard of oh, him. On his own passport? <coughs> yes. He, he, Which he was allowed to do? Yes. So off he went and to who knows where. And then it was, wasn't until 1988 when Trimboli died that I became involved in the Tazoni affair again because I had always intended writing a book about the Mackay case after Trimboli died because I was on a promise to get some documents and interviews that I couldn't get until after that happened. So he dies. I then start doing research for the book, come to Australia, speak to all the main players, go to Griffith. And I'm back in England writing the book because I happen to be working there. And I thought, look, the one thing I'm missing, I'd spoken to, you know, George Joseph, I'd spoken to the, all the main players, hadn't spoken to Tazoni. So I thought, I'll try and find them. Now, where do you start? So basically, I've got the transcripts from the court case. And the only link was that he was born in a town of Natuno, which is about an hour south of Rome, small coastal seaside town, and that he still had a bank account there, which I learned from the transcript, an official document. So, that well, that's where I'll start, because, you know, when you're looking for anybody, you go back to their past and you start with what school they went to, who they worked with, and you hope that they've kept in touch with those, some of those people. Never expected them to be in Natuno because I guess it's too obvious. And again, you would think that Italy is a, a strange place to go if you're a mafia supergrass and you want to hide from the mafia. But common sense and history tells you that people that go on the run or want to hide themselves or want to hide a body often go to places they're familiar with because it's a lot easier to actually blend in if you speak the language and you look Italian, which he obviously did. So I started in Atuno and I went to what I wish more journalists would use as one of the best contact books in the world, the telephone book. A physical telephone book in those cases, you don't have them these days, it's all electronic. So I went to the Natuno phone book and there was six Tazonis in there. And I thought, fairly uncommon name, hopefully one of them will... Uh, one of them will work out. So I started knocking on each of those doors at different times of the day. I quickly eliminated four of them by speaking to the people on that network. So there was two that they'd never... A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. There's been an answer. One was a newish house on the outskirts of town and the other was an apartment right in the centre of town that actually had a security system, an intercom and a bell that had G Tazoni next to it. And I'm thinking, it, surely not. It couldn't be that easy to find the Mafia Supergrass. But there was never any answer there. And I'm running out of time. I'm paying for this myself. I'm, you know, not employed to do this. I'm, I'm writing my first ever book and paying for it myself. 
So I thought, oh, I'm going to have to speed this up. Um, so I went out at three o'clock in the morning to the other house on the outskirts of town to do the time-honoured uh, police method of trying to find out whether somebody lives in a particular house by going through their garbage, which I don't think is against the law. Anybody that's been to Whitley will know that you don't actually have your personal garbage bin. You have a communal bin at the end of the street where oh. all the rubbish goes. Oh, good. Which makes it even harder. Well, how did you dress for that job, Keith? Casually in a tracksuit. Hmm. Uh, so I'm busy going through the going through the garbage, uh, looking for you know an envelope that had a name on it, anything because people throw things out, anything that would link to find out whether Jane Franco Dazzoni was connected to that property in any way. When I heard a shout from behind me, and I turned around, and there was three Italian blokes, all with shotguns, uh, pointed at me, saying something in Italian. I don't speak Italian. Um, they didn't speak English. So I'm going, journalista, journalista, in the hope that that was Italian for journalist, because it sounded mm. like it probably would be. <laughs> and they managed through the words to sort of say that they wanted to take me to the local police station, which I was quite pleased about, because it was better than being taken to a river and having concrete boots put on. So they literally marched me through the town of Natuno to the police station at three or four o'clock in the morning at Shotgun Point, get to the police station. Nobody there spoke very good English either, so they threw me in jail where I remained for about two and a bit days until my Victoria Police Media Pass helped save me in that the police searched my room, found my Victoria Media Pass, which in those days had a little photograph of you on it. And uh, they then got a policeman to come down from Rome that was fluent in both Italian and English, rang Victoria Police Media Liaison and said, is there a journalist called Keith Moore? What does he look like? You know, black hair in those days instead of grey hair and glasses. Yeah, that sounds like him. Does he have a funny accent? Yep, that's him. And that was when they released me from jail. As they were releasing me, they said, do you know, you've got no idea how close to being killed you were. I said, how come? He said, do you not know who these people were? I said, no idea. He said, the dad of the house is a local mafia boss. At midnight, his house had been shotgun blasted in a drive-by shooting. So he'd gone to bed and told his three sons to stay up in case anybody came back. So the three sons are looking at the window at three o'clock in the morning as I'm going through the garbage outside. And they thought there might have been a connection. That's why they came out and arrested me and took me to the police station. So the copper then said, look, just leave town. He said, they're dangerous people. You really don't want to be here. Just, I'll just get your car and go. I said, yeah, okay. So I went, got packed up, and I was about to drive my little car away. And this is where persistence really does pay off. It's a message that I give to every young journalist, never give in too easily. I thought, I'll just try that apartment one more time. I'll just ring the bell one more time. And I had rung that bell probably 80 times in the two and a bit weeks that I was there without any answer. So I've got my car packed, I parked it outside, and I'm ready to drive back to the airport and fly back to Newcastle. I rang the doorbell and was almost walking away when a female voice said something in Italian. And I said, oh, sorry, I, I don't, do you speak English? And a female voice said, yes, I speak English. Who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Keith Moore. I'm a journalist from Australia. I'm looking for Gianfranco Dazzoni. And she said, I'll be down in a minute. She comes down, and this stunning young lady introduces herself as Tiziana Tazzoni, real name, I kid you not. And it's Tazzoni's daughter. She invites me up into the apartment and she said, what are you doing here? What's the story? And I said, oh, look, I'm just looking for him. I'm writing a book and like any good journalist, uh, I, I just want to let him tell his side of the story if he wants to. I've, I've read all the court documents. Um, I've had people say nasty things about him. I'd like to meet the man and see him face to face and he can tell me whatever he wants. And she said, hang on, I'll ring him. She then picks up the phone and rings Gianfranco Tazzoni. And you know how you've researched somebody the nth degree, like I feel that I know him, even though I've never met him. She hands the phone over and Gianfranco says, yes, Keith, can I help you? Oh, that's magic. Where was he? 
he said, I'm not in the Tuno. I'm a long way from there. Tell me what you want to do. So again, I repeated the thing about writing a story. Just want to put your side of it. I want to meet you face to face. Will you meet me? And he said, yes, I will. Tiziana will bring you up here. So I then get in Tiziana's car and we drive for uh, probably a good couple of hours. We open to the hills into a small town called Foligno. And he was, I found out late, he's actually running a small service station up there, you know, pumping petrol and uh, driving his Fiat like a madman around the hairpin bins. So Tiziana drives me to the house. Dad opens the door and he's the archetypal mafia figure. He's got the leather cap on, he's got the leather waistcoat, the leather jeans, and he looks like, you know, somebody at a mafia casting 101. Uh, his first words to me were, spread them. So uh-huh. I'm up against the wall and he gives me the most intimate frisk I've had and I've been to Singapore with long hair, yeah. and you get a pretty intimate frisk when you go there. Once he was satisfied that I wasn't wired up or carrying, invites me in, I sit down, and I met his wife, and his wife and Tiziana go into one room, and Tizoni says, well, okay, tell me again what you're doing, and I told him, and he said, oh, do you know why I've seen you, Keith? I said, no, he said, I used to be a private detective with Tom Erickson. I said, yeah, I knew that. He said, I know how hard it is to find people. I've knocked on lots of doors trying to find people, he said, lots of people have tried to interview me, 60 Minutes, A Current Affair. All any of them done is write a letter or ring my lawyer in Melbourne and ask. He said, you're the only person that's actually got off your arse and found me. And I'm very impressed that you found me. I also want to know how you found me because I don't want people to find me. So, that's you know, the real so, reason. So that's, that, that's why. He wanted yeah. to close off the avenue. Yes. He thought that I'd gone to some great elaborate lengths where, in actual fact, I'd just used the telephone book and a bit of persistence to find him. So I told him that. And he said, oh, gee, I never thought of that. He said, do you know how lucky you are that Tiziana was there? I said, no. He said, what's the story? He said, she lives in Melbourne. She'd flown across, obviously got off in Rome is where you fly to, and she was going to visit her dad for the first time for a while. And her dad had said, oh, you couldn't just go and check on the apartment, could you? Because nobody had been at the apartment for six or seven months. Nobody lived there. He didn't rent it out. He just occasionally, if he had to go into tuna to see somebody, he would spend a night there. And he was worried because, of course, you've got to be worried about things like frozen pipes and burst pipes because it's a cold climate. So basically she called into Natuno for 20 minutes to just clear the mailbox and check that everything was okay before she carried on driving up to meet her dad. No. I happened to ring the doorbell in that 20-minute window. That I'd is been there 20 minutes. I, I would never have found him because I was about to give in and go back home and think I can't find... Tizoni, his next words really disappointed me. He said, he said Keith, he said, uh, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm writing a book myself. I said, oh, gee, and I'm thinking, I've come all this way and he's not going to tell He said, but because you've come all this way, I want to take you out to dinner. So he and I go out to dinner with Tiziana and the wife. We have a slap-up meal, which he pays for. We get back to the apartment about midnight. The girls go to bed and he said, let's have a nightcap. He gets a bottle of Campari out and two glasses and pours them. And as he's doing that, I reached down to my briefcase and I got the tape recorder and I said, Frank, I don't need a lot, just a little bit, just to say that I've spoken to you. You, you know, look, two minutes, can I just ask you a couple of questions? And he said, oh, I suppose so. And I popped it down and I did the old trick of playing up to his ego. You know who? You did what? Oh, gee, Frank, that must have been great. And eventually I couldn't shut him up. I had to keep changing the tape because it's not a digital one like now no. that goes for eight hours. You know, every, every 30 minutes or 45 minutes, I'd say, oh, Frank, I'll just pop another tape in. I'd change it. And basically, I got the first interview with Gianfranco Dazzoni where he talked about all sorts of things. He talked about the effect on his life. He talked about corrupt police officers. He talked about the Calabrian Mafia. I came home and wrote a full chapter in the book. And I know I'm the only person ever to have tracked him down and spoken to him because he died of natural causes six months later. That was in 1988. It was. So you're lucky in every respect. I mean, persistence pays, but 
yeah, the, it's the, like the, it's, the fluke like, of the daughter being at the any apartment. Ju- any journalist or any policeman that's done these things often will tell you that it's down to luck sometimes. Sometimes you find people really easily. Sometimes you spend, but as I say, it's that persistence and not giving up and just, I'll just have one more ring of that doorbell and it came good. Going to the, the right district and walking the territory, uh, you know, shoe leather. Yeah, and, and it's again... A, it's a uh, great, it's one of journalism's, Australian journalism's great stories. And you just yeah. need a little bit of information to know where to start. Like, where do you start? And often the best place to start is the beginning, where yeah. they went to school. Lots of people keep in touch with people that they went to school with. So the person you're looking for might not be in the town where they used to go to school, but most people will have had some sort of contact, even if you don't want to be found. When people go into witness protection, you have to sign a document saying you'll never contact your family, you'll never contact anybody you went to school with, you'll change your name, you'll get a different passport. And uh, it's just incredibly restrictive. Not many of us can sever all ties with everybody you've ever known. That's it's true. Like Trimboli was caught. Trimboli, when he got cancer, he hadn't been in touch with his son Craig for, for many, many, many years. He was diagnosed with cancer. He was obviously shocked because he knew he didn't have long to live. Picked up the phone and rang his son. Federal police had the son's phone tapped. Phone called. That's how they found out where he was. Not many people can avoid keeping in touch with their past. So I've used that, I'm sure you have, when you're trying to find people, you start off with where they got married, where they went to school, where they went to university, and and gradually you just get a link, you get a link, and you just keep moving on. And I say, I was very lucky in finding Tazoni. It's a marvellous story. And it's one, I think, that has links with other crime stories that you've covered over the years. And I think there's a link between Tazoni and Trimboli and Griffith and the whole thing. And the folks who brought us what you called the great tomato tin ecstasy bust. Let's have a chat about that next episode. No worries. Read my column in the Sunday Herald Sun and online at heraldsun.com.au. Hi, it's Lauren Wood here from the Super Footy Podcast. We'll be here each and every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts, with all of the action from across the AFL. News, views and the biggest issues from across the game here at the Herald Sun. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.